As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Welcome to the Phil Hay Show that's brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. I'm Dan Moylan and today from The Square Ball remotely, here's Michael Normanson. Hello. And in the studio here is The Athletic's Phil Hay. Hello. 33% off the full price of a subscription for The Athletic if you go through this show. You get all the analysis, the in-depth features, a huge team of football writers, the very best in the business. You get ad-free versions of all these podcasts as well via The Athletic app. Theathletic.com forward slash leads pod for the offer. Phil, tell me one good reason to get on board this week. There's a few things on this week um, that might be of interest. Uh, look at Patrick Bamford and how much Leeds are missing him, which I think is um, a lot. Also, a read on Jean-Kevin Augustine, two years since Leeds brought him to Leeds um, from RB Leipzig. A look at the case that's going on in the background, but also a little revival from him at Nantes. Um, it's been a tough time for him over there, but quite an interesting, interesting situation with him. And also... We've done um, some analysis of Aronson and his game, uh, Brendan Aronson, the, the Leeds United target, because even though it doesn't look like he's going to sign in this window, he is somebody who Leeds will probably go back after. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. That's the story, is it? Uh, Theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod to check all that out. And into the football, then we'll do transfers in part two. But first of all, let's um, have a look at where we are right now. It was all going so well, wasn't it, with two wins on the bounce? And then uh, Saturday happened. One minute you're floating out of West Ham, the next everybody's trudging out of Ellen Road with three minutes of injury time to go. And that that was probably the most telling moment of the afternoon was when that shot from Chris Wood deflected over the bar, went for a corner. The number of people who got up and left at that point was amazing, really. It hasn't been like that at Ellen Road all season. And I think part of the reason for that is that there's always felt like there's something in the game. You know, there's been the late winner against Palace. There's been the late goals against Brentford. And also Rodrigo's goal against Wolves. So the potential's always been there and it's never felt like the game is up until it's actually done. But it was kind of telegraphed that defeat by that stage. The last 10 minutes, the last 15 minutes, there'd been nothing really coming at Newcastle. If anything, it looked like 1-0 was going to go 2-0. I thought Newcastle were pretty unlucky not to get penalty for a a little touch from Llorente on um, Alan Sam-Maximan. It was their game towards the end and I think the crowd knew it. You know, I think at that stage, even though there were three minutes to go, injury time left... Nobody could see a goal coming. Nobody thought a goal was coming. Um, and, it, and it was a pretty a pretty hefty ex- exodus. And I don't know whether that was a case of people thinking better to get out the ground than to be tempted to have a moan when the final whistle comes. And I actually, again, didn't think that the, the reaction at full time 
was overly aggressive, was overly negative. There was, you know, a bit of discontent as they were bound to be. But it's a bad result. And it was one of those kind of pivotal afternoons where you could have stretched a long way clear of the bottom three and, and been pretty close to 30 points, which give or take is probably going to be enough to keep you up. And the alternative, which is what Leeds are facing now, is to be kind of back in it, you know, still with that gap below you, but just the feeling that actually on that weekend, finally, some of the bottom four had actually made a bit of tangible progress. I think for me, the moment I knew it was over was when Rodrigo booted the ball into the stand in frustration. It just didn't ever feel to me like from that point onwards, it was going to click. No, and there were a lot of strands to what went on on Saturday. The first was that in, in before half time, Leeds had a, a lot of the play and a lot of great positions out wide, primarily with Jack Harrison on the left, but also good situations with Rafinha on the right, but absolutely nothing at the end of it. And it wasn't a case of shot after shot on goal. It, it was a case of, fantastic positions followed by absolutely nothing you know balls into the middle that were not actually bad deliveries or bad balls full stop but were just leading to nothing there was nobody anticipating them they had Dan James at nine who who wasn't managing to get himself on on the end of them in a position that was really giving him much chance to score but then after half time suddenly you know five minutes in ten minutes in it became very very end to end and and having been a bit of a kind of not solely attack against defence but but very much leads on top it was kind of punch for punch and it became that kind of open, dangerous game that I think suddenly suited Newcastle and, and Newcastle thought to themselves there might well be be something in this. The goal was obviously a mess and, you know, but for that, it probably is finishing nil-nil. And but for that, you know, the, potentially it's a different finish to the game because Newcastle think a point is worth hanging on for. But from that stage onwards, as soon as Shelby's goal slips off Millie and, and goes in, Leeds attacking play just disappeared completely. There was no structure to it. It wasn't leading to anything. They they weren't really getting into the good positions that they'd been in previously. And there was no sign of a goal. And, and I did think as well that once Cleek came off, building the attacks, you know, through the midfield and, and, and beyond became extremely difficult. And it's hard to say that Newcastle deserved the win from that. I thought they were incredibly poor, but Leeds didn't do enough ultimately. And... I sort of tweeted afterwards and said that is a game that was there to be won and, and should have been won. And those are the ones that tend to hurt. Do you think Leeds should have been out of sight then completely in that first half? It was very hard not to sit and think, A, what difference would Gellhart have made up front? But more to the point, I think, what difference would Bamford have made up front for the amount of service coming in from out wide, which is, you know, one of his strengths, really, those near post runs, those little shimmies that get him away from his marker and give him a bit of space and essentially if the ball comes to him it's a it's a free hit on goal I think it would have been tailor-made for him with James it wasn't and it's not that James hasn't had good games in that position I mean I thought he played well at West Ham and actually the performance worked very well down there Leeds were dangerous going forward and, and really good at creating space and, and much better at picking him out I had a look afterwards he touched the ball twice in the second half and he wasn't on for the whole of the second half but he was on for enough of it and there was a kind of disconnect there and it does make you feel that the persevering was somebody there who is a winger, you know, he, who is probably nothing if not a winger and yes, it can work from time to time but it, it is, again, we, we think this a lot really, you know, that, that minus Bamford there, it, it's problematic and I think that was the case on Saturday. Talk to me about the subs then because that one was a bit of a head scratcher for people not seeing Gellhart come on, particularly with the effect that he has on the crowd and again, this is no comment on Tyler Roberts. You know, everyone will have their own opinion of Tyler Roberts and the reaction to him, which we should say is always good in the stadium, uh, even though people were baffled, I think, by him coming on. Nobody really murmured or showed any discontent with that decision. I'd say there was an uneasy silence yeah. when he was brought on as everyone went, 
oh, not, that's not what I was hoping for. It's a bit like unwrapping a gift. You're expecting something and then you open it and you think, ah, not the one I asked for, but okay. You think it's going to be an Xbox and it's a cutlery set or something <laughs> something like that. I started to feel towards the end of the first half, and, and I did say this at the time, that you felt as if Gilhart's finishing was going to come into play at some point. If, if the game carried on going the way it was going, somebody who was able to sniff out those chances that were not quite on a plate, but were definitely there to be had, was going to potentially alter the game. So I expected him to come on first, absolutely. And I think it was a surprise to see Roberts, but not if you look back through the history of what Bielsa has done with his substitutions. He very often turns to Roberts first. There is a definite difference, I think, between Bielsa's opinion of Roberts and the crowds. And as you say, I think the crowds in the stadium have, have been fair to him. And actually, if, if we're going to be totally fair to Roberts, it, it's reasonable to say that around about Christmas... There were games where he played better and there were games where he shone more and, and had a bit more of an impact, but not on Saturday. You know, Saturday was one of those games that, that does frustrate people about him. And when Gelhart came on, obviously the, the, the sacrifice at that point was Matthias Clake. And, and it did feel to me as if from there to the end of the game, there was a lack of presence in midfield and, and no ability to properly build the attacks in a way that was going to threaten Newcastle. And bear in mind as well that Newcastle were time-wasting throughout. But once Ryan Fraser started going down with cramp, he did actually have cramp. And towards the end of the game, he could barely run, which meant that the right side of their team was absolutely there for somebody to eat into him. You know, potentially somebody with Dan James's pace, but he was off the pitch. Rafinha swapped sides, but actually it didn't really make any difference. Bielsa's explanation for this seemed to be, unless I read what he was saying wrong, that in his head, Roberts was the replacement for James. So at the point where James was coming off the pitch, it was Roberts who would go on. James had a booking, he'd taken out the keeper, which is becoming his kind of trademark. <laughs> and so Bielsa decided that because he was on a booking, that was the point at which to, to make the sub take him off the pitch. So Roberts, Roberts comes on. And then I think in his head, so he told us, he'd been thinking that Gilhart would come on for Rodrigo. But actually when he looked at Rodrigo, he felt that Rodrigo still had something to offer in the last 10 minutes and wasn't done. He's been out for a long time, but physically still had, still had a little bit to go. So he replaced Clake and, you know, Clay had a, a bit of a swing at a sweatshirt when he came on. I don't know if that was frustration with the substitution or frustration with the fact that they played, you know, in the first half certainly, played as well as they had or created as many good opportunities as they had. And ultimately they were 1-0 down and, and looking like losing the game. But the substitutions did not work. They, they didn't work at all on Saturday. And that's been a little bit of a, the story of the season, I think. Not solely that the subs don't have the impact you'd want them to have, but that the choice of subs is just not broad enough to... to Kind of give you flexibility in every situation. I mean, I know none of us know anywhere near the amount about football that Marcelo Bielsa does. He's forgotten more than most of us have ever known. But I also do believe in the wisdom of crowds and that crowd sensed it knew. You put Gellhart on. Well, that, that's how we all felt. Yeah, very much so. Um, and this is what makes the, the debate about Roberts so peculiar. On the one hand, you've got a lot of people who I think can acknowledge the fact that Roberts has talent, you know, and, and is... It, you're not looking at a footballer who cannot play. I think the question mark over him is whether or not, certainly at this stage of his career, he's suited to the Premier League. And I'm yet to see it consistently enough to think that he definitely is. And I also think that in the period where he's been under Bielsa's tutelage, he hasn't improved as much as he would have liked to have done, although he did have that big problem with his shin. He was injured for, for a long, long time. But you've got one train of thought, which is that Roberts isn't really good enough right now for, for what Leeds need but he's playing constantly. You've got the other train of thought, which is very much Bielsa's, that he really, really rates Roberts. He does. He thinks he's a talented player. He thinks he suits the system. 
he thinks he does what, what he needs him to do. But I can't argue with anybody who was sat there 75 minutes in or, or 70 minutes in when uh, when Roberts came off the bench and thought, this is the moment for Gilhart. It, it did feel like that. Um, and it was it was confusing. He wasn't the only one culpable in that goal either, was he? Urente, um obviously committed the foul. Melier got it all wrong, his footwork wrong. I think Urente probably has to make that foul once Manquillo goes past him. Obviously, it's not a decision that paid off because Newcastle get a goal from the free kick. But once he once he gets beaten for pace, Leeds are in all sorts of trouble there. So you've got a split second to decide. I'm outside the box. Do I take him down? Do I, do I let him go? I think given how how mediocre Shelby's free kick was, it was the right decision. You know, it was the right thing to do because you're halting what is a, a really dangerous attack. But the problem had come further up the field where Roberts had, had lost possession and tried to find, I think it was Rafinha out wide, had had opportunities more than one to get the ball out there, hadn't done it, ball had got nicked. And you will have seen, as I did, Urente stepping out after the foul to absolutely bollock Roberts and to say to him, you cannot be giving the ball away in that position. And I think that's probably fair criticism in those circumstances. You know, the, it was a situation where Leeds got turned over too cheaply. But then, of course, you have the free kick, which bounces in front of Melier. There's an argument about whether Newcastle were offside at that point, although nobody gets a touch. Here we go again. And... <laughs> Then you know Melee should stop that. That he, he he should save that. But you know in Melee's defence, a lot of good saves from him this season. Cracking save from Shelby in the first half. Really good save from Willock to stop it going two 0 towards the end of the game. I know those don't count when you lose one 0 but I think in in the the long list of people who you would try and apportion blame to this season, I don't think Melee features very highly on it. You've said it a lot, Michael, haven't you? Actually, um, he's got a lot of credit in the bank. He has, yeah. It, every single game, he makes at least one or two saves that you genuinely impressed by which um, given the goalkeepers we've had in the last few years it's uh, he's he stands out far and away above the, the rest of them and he's, he's still very young as well so I think there's an acceptance that you know occasionally these things happen the fact we as a club seem insistent on gifting Shelby goals at the cop end is some is a weird <laughs> habit we've developed just looking at the bigger picture then I mean I know Twitter is not um, an accurate representation of of humanity in its day-to-day humanity <laughs> but do you know what I mean like this absolute the gnashing and the wailing and it's really really tiring isn't it when everyone goes into complete meltdown but do you think there is justification in getting angry at that result I, I getting angry at the result definitely you said you know it's it's tiring I think people are quite tired by this season it's not been very enjoyable has it I mean aside from the West Ham result there hasn't really been a game where you've come away thinking that was a really, really stellar win, that, you know, stellar, stellar result. I thought they played really well against Leicester at home. I did, and I thought they were unlucky to draw that game. But your other victories have been very late against Palace. It's been Norwich who, you know, at that point couldn't really buy a, a result. It hasn't been enough of what we saw last season, which was Everton away, Leicester away, Manchester City away. You know, really kind of special results and, and impressive results. And that was the thing about West Ham. It felt like a return to that. So you come away from West Ham thinking they've almost shown today why they're going to be okay, you know, and, and why it is that they, they'll keep clear of, of the bottom three. And then you play a Newcastle team as limited as that and, and you get done in that fashion. And it felt like a classic game where a team beats themselves. There was so much in that that, that Leeds could have prevented or, or could have averted or, or could have done slightly differently. And with the exception of the the end of the game where the space that was opening up was really starting to help Newcastle rather than Leeds. They never really looked like like winning it and the, the, the time-wasting suggested to you that they would not have objected to a, 
a draw at Ellen Road at all. But yeah, it's again, I said a, a lot of strands to the a lot of strands to the game itself, a lot of strands to what's going on at Leeds at the moment. You know, the the result then feeds into frustration about the transfer window, which is not hard to find and is is very, very apparent. And the absence of any transfers doesn't do anything to soothe that and, and to soothe that atmosphere. And I guess everything in the background is a question of are Leeds okay? You know, are they okay? Are they safe? How safe are they in these circumstances? Will they stay up if they sign nobody? Will they stay up even if they do sign somebody? It's just uncertainty at the moment, isn't it? And and it's never settled down into a pattern that looks consistent or takes them out of trouble. And I think Saturday was a big day because it was such an opportunity to to really break clear. Um, as I say, I think if you go beyond 30 points at a fairly early stage of the season, i.e. not in the last few weeks, then you're pretty much all right, aren't you? Because catching that is going to be extremely difficult. And I still think catching leads at that the position they're at the moment will be will be really difficult. But you, at some point, you want to kind of fuel optimism about the sense that, do you know what, this is all in hand and it, it will be okay. I'm just looking down, actually, the um, the form table here. Last five games, the bottom 10 teams, that's 50 matches in total. And of course, they will have played each other, some of them. Um, there have only been 11 wins and two of those have been ours. So only nine wins in the entire bottom half of other teams. So... It's not a disaster, is it? It's always no, unnerving when you when you sat in fifteenth and and the gap is only seven points. But seven points is a lot to make up for teams that have only got twelve, fourteen, fifteen all season. Yeah, and Watford have been Ranieri, who has been every bit as dismal as Cisco. In fact, worse, and hasn't even lasted. Well, maybe has done just about ten, half ten the games? season. Was but, it ten you know, games? Not, yeah, so at thirteen, I think in in all competitions, something like that. But it's gone. And now they've gone for Roy Hodgson and, you know, I, I don't understand how that fits into the Watford model at all, but that's what they're that's what they're doing. I suppose appointing him to the end of the season means it's short term, which very much does fit in with the with the Watford model. So, yeah, there, there are a lot of problems at, at that end of the table. I, I think you always aspire to be better than that, don't you? And also, in the bigger picture, Bielsa has made Leeds very aspirational. He's made the fan base very aspirational. He's always been aspirational. I've said many times, I don't think he'll be enjoying this season and I don't think he'll like the fact at all that from where Leeds were in May last season, ninth in the Premier League, they do look like they've gone backwards, you know, by by quite a considerable margin. He he won't be, be happy about that. And you're kind of looking for some light relief now, aren't you? They're out of both cups. They're not going to do anything significant in the league but it would be nice to have a run of beat Burnley, beat West Ham, beat Newcastle, a bit of plain sailing that means everybody can relax a little. I think now this season, the, the sum total of aspiration for me with this season is now just get to the point where we're mathematically safe and we can all exhale and just forget about it. And if that's early, if that comes early, say middle of March or, or something like that, then by the end of the season, you'll probably have a slightly different perspective on it to this perspective you have at the point where you're actually safe. I don't mean you're going to look back on it and think that it was a, an incredible year or was it was in any way Leeds punching above the weight, but I think you you will be able to rationally say, well, from here, you know, they, they again have an opportunity to make progress and they have an opportunity to look at what's gone on this season and be very and brutally honest about what's worked, what hasn't worked, what needs to change, what they, they need to address. And you have a full summer transfer window in which to do that. I mean, I, I always kind of felt that this, you know, this could be a, a very useful stepping stone, providing it does what it needs to do, which is keeping leads in the league. But a win over Newcastle would have taken them a hell of a lot closer to that. 
This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Let's wrap up the transfer activity or lack thereof now, Phil. We should timestamp it. Um, Quarter past 11 on Thursday morning as we record this bit right now. Anything could happen between now and Monday night, couldn't it? Well, last week we timestamped it and said there's one bid in and then by the time the podcast had appeared, we'd obviously run the story saying that they were about to up the bid to £20 million, which they did um, last week. The option obviously was there to make a third bid. As it stands, I don't think they have and I suspect the reason they haven't is that they don't think Salzburg are going to budge on this one and Salzburg haven't really looked like budging on it since they submitted the first bid of £50 million. Haven't said yes to the second bid of of £20 million and you know, part of me thinks if you're Salzburg and it's so apparently obvious that Leeds are going to go back in for him in the summer, keep him for the rest of the season and take your money further down the line he is a player that Leeds really really want and I do think that Anderson will end up at Ellen Road at some stage but it looks highly unlikely to be in this window he's over in the States at the moment with the the USA national team they've got some World Cup qualifiers it doesn't make it impossible that because he can do medicals remotely you know I don't think personal terms and everything like that would be an issue with him at all from what I understand he's really keen on the move but it's never been his intention to kind of bully his way out of Salzburg mid-season when they've got the Champions League to come and they're top of the, the Austrian Bundesliga and everything else. So it's not looking likely at that one unless something dramatic goes on. Tell me about plan B then, Phil. There's a plan B. Um, I refer you to the answers about plan B that Bielsa has given many, many times, <laughs> which is to say that I don't think they will turn to another midfielder. We know what the reaction to that is and is going to be. I mean, if this window closes with no movement, people are going to be really, really unhappy. And... I know Angus Kinnear has tried to head this one off at the past to a certain degree with his programme notes against Newcastle on Saturday. We've got, I mean, we've got these words here in front of us on the sheet. Do you want to read them? Yeah, if we if we want to. Um, in blooding Lewis Bate and Leo Yelder, Marcelo broke a divisional record by having handed eight teenagers their debut in a single season. While this has led to some factions understandably bemoaning a perceived lack of strength in depth in our squad, it promises an extremely bright future for our great club. We are confident that we are building a long-term competitive advantage in the recruitment and development of world-class young talent. Central to this strategy is our ability to promise and deliver to our young players a fast track to first-team football, as well as a culture where there is a belief in the process and where the players, irrespective of age, are trusted to deliver on the Premier League stage. This strategy clearly impacts our evaluation of transfer targets, where our analysis indicates that many January options requiring an eight-figure investment would not be a material improvement on the current performances of emerging players such as Bate, Yelder and Joe Gelhart. Moreover, signing other options would block such youngsters' development and would offer nowhere near the long-term potential. Simultaneously, any January activity has an opportunity cost on more optimal moves in the summer. 
As a board, we have always tried to be transparent with supporters in the belief that it is better if our recruitment strategy is disagreed with by some fans than misunderstood by many. It was very punchy for the middle of a transfer window um, and the middle of a transfer window which hasn't finished. I I always kind of feel that the best time to explain what's been going on and and what's been happening is, is usually afterwards. And it was interesting that because at the time they were written, it would have been apparent, I think, that Leeds were going in for Aronson and it was it would have been 24 hours, I think, 48 hours before the Newcastle game that the bid for Aronson um, was up to, to £20 million. So I guess what you have to read into that is that he's not saying that they won't sign anybody or they're not bidding for anybody because quite clearly they, they were in for Aronson. And I have seen a few people say to me, look, this is all just a charade. They're bidding for somebody that they, <laughs> that they can't get. I think what you have to accept is that if Salzburg had said, oh yeah, absolutely, we'll take £20 million, then somebody was going to have to pay that. You know, Leeds could not have bid that money and then said, oh, actually, we don't really have it. You know, we were just doing this to, to kind of appease appease Twitter. So the, the thing about the model at Leeds is I do actually like it. I do, I do like what they're trying to do and I do like the idea of it. I just feel that this season it's been pushed to extremes and it's been pushed almost too far. And I don't think anybody can really argue the toss and say that it's a good scenario to be in when your bench is consistently as young and inexperienced as as it is at the moment under Bielsa and, and part of the reason for that is that you can never pretend either that your entire 23s crop are going to be good enough there is masses of talent in the 23s group and I think there are plenty of players there who you could reasonably gamble on to to come through Bate being one of them um, Stroik obviously has already but you know, other guys like Creswell, Helder, Gelhart, quite clearly, there are a, a group there who will. But I don't think any of us really envisage a day where the lineup from the 23s earlier this week or at points in this season is fundamentally the lineup that you see in the Premier League with Leeds United. It's, it's not going to be like that. So you do have to invest and you do have to pay out for players to fit round about the best of the kids who, who come through. And you have to be very careful always not to put so much faith in the 23s group that you start to trust in players who actually deep down you know are probably not going to make it and are probably not quite what you need. It's a really difficult balance and it is it is kind of hard to strike. But if I had read those notes as a supporter, I think I would have come away from Saturday's game thinking, we're probably not going to sign anybody here, are we? It feels to me like we don't have the luxury of cherry-picking signings so much as perhaps we want to. It's not like we're up pushing for Europe, is it? We are very close to the trapdoor, not a million miles away from being safe either, we should say that. So I guess that's where the balancing act does come in, but it does feel like we're being overly picky at a time when a signing, the right signing, would probably do the world a good. The truth will out with that one, in as much as if Leeds stay up this season and do Anson in the summer, they might argue that actually it was the right thing to do and he was a player that we specifically wanted but you're right, you don't have as much of a luxury. It's not that you don't have the luxury ever to do that, but you don't have as much. I mean, to take Manchester City um, as an example, City's recruitment policy tends to be to focus on tiny, tiny number of players, and understandably so, because they're at such an elite level. There aren't that many players out there that they can sign who are going to improve them and make them better, and the players who are are, are naturally going to be very, very expensive. But you quite often see with City that if they, if they can't, get the player that they're going for, they'll just sit tight. So you saw it in the summer, they, they, you know, they obviously signed Grealish from Villa, but they were very, very keen on Harry Kane. And the feeling before it all got very messy for Kane was that he was going to go and that one would go through. 
But then it didn't and Tottenham weren't budging and City weren't prepared to pay what, what Tottenham actually wanted. But what you didn't see was City suddenly branch out and go, right, okay, well, we'll just get Haaland instead or we'll do somebody else. And, and clearly they have done a deal for a striker in this window down in Argentina at River Plate, but he's staying on loan there and will come in the summer. So it's not a, an immediate impact on that. It is, again, somebody that they specifically want and so have decided to do. I think at that level, you can operate like that. And actually, you probably have to operate like that because, the, as I say, the pool of players that would suit you is so small that you really have to be going after one or two, you know, specifically as opposed to having a big broad list of he would do, he would do. They've, they've got to be absolutely elite. At Leeds, it's not that you can't do that. It's just that you have to be careful that you don't get sucked so closely into looking at a tiny group of players who potentially can't be done at the time when you first want to do them or can't be done at all uh, that sort of leaves you with, with nobody. You know, in the way that in the summer there was Gallagher, there was O'Brien, neither of them worked, so they, they were left with no central midfielder. It has been a, a bit of an issue and, you know, it's again, talking about the balance, striking the balance of the 23s, it, it is very much the same with recruitment. I mean, the question that's going to come up naturally as a result of this is if we are to push a third bid in, whether that happens or not, critics will say, why didn't they have this answer weeks ago about Aronson? If they knew that Salzburg weren't going to sell, why leave it till this late in the window to hit the brick wall? They would have known if it was a brick wall you're coming up against, it's still going to be there two, three weeks ago. That's what the critics will say. And I, I accept that I don't know how the transfer market works, but that's what people will say. I think it's a fair question, actually, that I'd, I'd kind of like to hear the answer to myself. I mentioned last week that in the Sensible Transfers piece that we did on The Athletic, we didn't include Anson, despite you know the awareness of, of the links to Leeds and, and the fact that he, he, does, he does fit. Because it seemed, from what was being said in Austria, it seemed pretty clear that Salzburg were not going to sell him we're not going to sell anybody. You know, there seemed to be this this kind of blanket decision over there that they were keeping their squad as it is and, and were, were ploughing on through the second half of the season. I suppose the one thing you never know is what are a club going to do when you actually stick the readies on the table? So when you actually submit an offer of £50 million or £20 million, does, no, he's not for sale and we're not interested and we won't listen to any offers become actually, do you know what, that's quite good money. Maybe we should just do this. And if he's going to go in the summer anyway, and if he wants the move, you know, this would be the time to take the cash. So perhaps just chancing your arm, seeing how it goes. I think both Kinnear's programme notes and the bid for Anderson, you know, particularly the fact that they've kind of been quite open about the fact that if it doesn't happen in this window, they'll go for him in the summer. You know, it's not like that urgency of he's, he's got to come now. You know, this is just a player we want. Does make you think that there's confidence there that they are okay for this season and they will be okay this season what you have to ask is whether that confidence is misplaced or slightly misplaced you know is is this too much of a too much of a risk I want to say I think they'll be fine because we've been saying that all season and I was saying that in the summer transfer window when, when people were complaining about recruitment then but we are down to brass tacks now where there's very little point in us sitting here going yeah I think they'll be okay I think they'll be okay it's about results isn't it and so if they get results, they will be fine. If they don't, then they will, you know, they will potentially get sucked into trouble. And I think on the back of this window, they do need a good February. They need a good February that takes them up towards 30 points so that there is the ability to say, look, you know, this is the strategy. And more to the point, it has actually worked this season because it is going to keep us up and it's going to give us another year of Premier League revenue and it's going to let us progress from here. But, you know, he, he said at the end of those notes, Kinnear, transparent with the supporters in the belief that it's better to be disagreed with than to be misunderstood. And it's fair to say that there are people out there who do disagree with the policy. 
I guess just to balance out what I said before, the deadline itself is a fixed date in the calendar, isn't it? And I guess bids going in close to the deadline will focus minds, like you say, suddenly someone might say, well, actually, that third bid is quite tempting and we're not going to get a chance to get any more because the deadline's there. Yeah, there the definitely is that. So if you go in on January the 1st and you submit £50 million to Salzburg, Salzburg might, in 100% good faith, say, no, look, he's not for sale and there's no point in you bothering with us. You know, like, As I mentioned about Ben White at Brighton, it was just a kind of brick wall. Don't bother us again. Please don't email us again. We don't want to hear from you. But there's the other side of the, the way that clubs operate, which is that they might think, well, we now have 31 days to drag this out and to you know tease more cash out of them and to kind of be a bit playful with offers, so knock them back, but not smash them out of the park and just kind of keep teasing and teasing and teasing in the hope that the price goes up and that by the end of the window, you've seen it loads of times with, with various deals that the price goes kind of through the roof or well beyond what you what you should be paying. But it feels as if Salzburg's stance is more solid than that. They just don't seem inclined to deal at the moment. Do you think they've got it right, Michael? It's hard to argue that they have given... I mean, given we've had windows now where we've tried to get Cuisance, we've tried O'Brien tried Gallagher, we've now tried Aronson and we're finishing a game with a centre-back and two, well, what we used to think of as strikers is making up the midfield um, on the weekend. So it's it's fairly hard to argue that there isn't they haven't left a gap in the middle. It does concern me, I have to say. I think it, with a fully fit squad, I guess you'd be looking at Dallas and Shackleton also able to fill in in midfield and we are, as we know, completely ravaged by injuries. But to go back to the, the pathway for youngsters, We've seen, obviously, Drama has decided that he'd rather go off and play football. And we do have that pathway there. But if if Bate isn't getting in the team now, is he thinking to himself, well, when am I getting into it? I think that's part of it. And that would appear to have been in the mind of Cody Drama when he decided to go to Cardiff, was that there were games instantly available down there that, that he wasn't necessarily going to get at Leeds, even though he was close enough to it to expect to get a few minutes here and there. Again, it's it's a real balancing act and it is hard to make promises to the 23s about the exact number of minutes that you'll get. And Bielsa kind of got into that when he was speaking about Drammy and he referenced specifically Murderball, you know, the, the kind of value of Murderball to the youngsters. As if to say, look, even if they're not getting games, they're getting Murderball with the first team squad through the week. His perception of that might be that that is of massive value to them and that's something they should be very grateful for the way players see it might well be that they don't see that as the same as, you know, competitive matches. So in order for these players to be happy and, and you know, to continue progressing, they are going to have to get blooded from time to time. But they are, you know, some of them are getting plenty of minutes and, and some of them are heavily involved. And I think Stroik is probably the best example of what can happen if you stick with it. I mean, he's been quite, well, not even quite, he's been a very, very slow burn on the BLC. It's taken time but he's up to kind of 50 appearances now. He is looking very, very good and looking like he could be a long-term left-sided centre-back at Leeds. You know, definitely Premier League standard. So it can happen and, and it will happen. It's just, there's, there's got to be patience involved and there's got to be, there's got to be common sense applied as well about the fact that your squad cannot be young to the point where it has no no nous at all. I guess the elephant in the room here is Bielsa himself and how he chooses to utilise the 23s as we just sort of touched on there, Phil. And, the example with Newcastle fresh in the mind is this pathway to the first team. Why is Joe Gelhart not getting brought on because he's a centre forward against Newcastle? So the evidence of what we saw most recently, and obviously there's going to be a bias around that, is that actually the pathway to the first team is a lot longer and slower than 
perhaps we need right now. It, it's as you've pointed out, and I hadn't really thought about it until you pointed it out this year, but the senior crop of players that we've got in the squad, and then there's the, the 23s who are sort of coming in behind them all. And then there's this big old gap in the middle where you have very, very few players with the exception of what Phillips and Rafinha, who's coming into his prime years, who sort of occupy that mid-20s age group. Yeah, that prime peak years zone, it, it definitely is the case. The point about robertson Gilhart, the answer to that is because no matter who you sign and no matter how you build the squad, you defer in the end to the head coach when it comes to deciding what the lineup is and who comes off the bench. It's, it's his call. And Leeds would never ever say to him, your first sub needs to be Gilhart because Gilhart needs to be pushed. That's totally his decision. I, I don't know if you've seen the video clip of him at Bilbao where he's asked about youngsters, playing youngsters, and, and he says, my job is not to play players to show that they're useless. My job is to play players to show that they're useful. Therefore, I'm not going to play... And I think like useless is a, is a bit strong. It was his word, but you know, I don't <laughs> think that's kind of what, what he's meaning. But what he is meaning is that it's not his job to play players that he doesn't think are ready or doesn't think are up to it or doesn't think are, are quite right. It's his job to pick the team as he would even if he had the most, the strongest and, and most elite squad going. That would still be his judgment as as a coach. So, yeah, and the you know the, the peak premiers thing, I think, is a definite issue because your older guard who've given so much service and so much great service under Bielsa will, obviously, keep getting older. And there comes a point where you have to replace them and one of the interesting things about Aronson is that there are quite a few similarities, I think, when you watch him. And I know Leeds think this as well with Matthias Cleek, you know, not so different in their style of play. And given where Cleek is in his career versus where Aronson is in his career, and given how kind of critical that position and that role is to the way Leeds play and, you know, Leeds playing successfully, totally makes sense to me. I, I completely understand why you would go for a player like that. It, it definitely does fit. But I think... You know, to go back to the original point, around the 23s, there still has to be major first-team investment. And um, that's going to have to continue. I mean, one of the interesting things this morning, actually, is that the, the Rodrigo-Barcelona link is thrown up again. And you'll remember that in the summer, they had a very, very late go in, um, in the summer window to try and get him on loan. And we're well, not backed by Leeds. Rodrigo didn't want to go. Leeds didn't want to, to let him go. It seems incredible incredibly difficult at this stage to imagine how on earth that sort of deal would, would work for Leeds unless they got mega money and were able to to use it um, elsewhere but that's one of those that, that doesn't really go away What do you make of Rodrigo? Do you think that a transfer might actually be the best for all parties if we can recoup some money on him? Well we'll come on to this in part three about the number nine position in Bamford in particular but one of the things that Saturday against Newcastle seemed to tell you was that Rodrigo doesn't look any closer to getting a run at nine regardless of the fact that that position changed hands three times, so it was James and then Roberts and then Gilhart, it was never Rodrigo, even though he's come to England thinking of himself as a centre-forward, you know, striker, whatever, number nine, it feels as if Bielsa sees him more and more as a 10. Some of Rodrigo's passing on Saturday was exceptional. There were a couple of balls at the outside of his foot that were that were absolutely blinding. But it's a stroke struggle for him to to be consistent over long periods of time and I never feel that Leeds press as well with Rodrigo in the team or defend as well with Rodrigo in the team as they do with, with somebody else in there. You're sort of asking, would you be tempted with him? It depends on a number of factors that, doesn't it? It depends what the, the what the action's going to be if he goes. What are you going to do? You know, who are you, who are you going to go for? Because Rodrigo does create a lot of chances. He does create a lot of chances. He is creative. I still think at nine, as we've seen previously, he, he can do some do some damage and, and be very useful. 
and also it's it's that late in the window realistically what what can you do as I say it's hard to know how much there is in that because this interest from Barcelona has always been there and was there last summer but it would be when we're talking Thursday the window shuts on Monday it would be a it would be a big call that two points to cover off then before we finish this section we'll do Crescenzio Somerville in a second first point I want to ask about is Bielsa just to close that thought out how hard is he to recruit for and is that proving difficult for the club he is very hard to recruit for two reasons first being that the, the specification that he sets for players is really really narrow you know and fits into a perfect mould so with Aronson for example they like the fact that he covers a huge amount of ground you know you don't need to worry about Aronson's pressing because he plays for Salzburg and, and that's what, what Salzburg do um, they're a, a pressing team but also he doesn't always want that many players I mean I, I've been told by various people that this month he has not been that fussed about people coming in and I know we're all on the outside saying you don't have enough you need this you could do it more in midfield this that and the other but going right back to the start he's never really he's never really relied on the transfer market in the way that so many other head coaches do so yeah it, it is kind of difficult and I, I can imagine there probably are times where the recruitment team at the club are thinking we could probably do with signing him or signing him or we could do with improving this or, or this that and the other but the final decision will always be Bielsa's because it kind of has to be. And, you know, you, you're then in the hands of what does he want? Who does he want? I mean, the only time I can think of Leeds kind of pushing him on that was when Llorente came in. And it was a case of Otto going to him and saying, I just don't think we have enough cover defensively. You know, I really think we should go for another centre-back to make sure that we'd, we're properly resourced in that area. But it wasn't just going to be any centre-back. It wouldn't have been a case of Bielsa saying, OK, well, you go and get me a centre-back and, you know, jobs are good it would have had to have been somebody specific, i.e. Llorente, who fits the mould of what Bielsa wants in a central defender. So yeah, it, it is a challenge. It's always been a challenge. And set against the fact that he could be gone in six months as well. So it's quite hard to plan adequately for the future with that situation, isn't it? It is, which is what's quite interesting about Aronson. You know, they, they kind, of, kind of do that one, or they, they want to do that one in the summer. So that is kind of irrespective of what Bielsa decides or what the club decide they're going to do with Bielsa. And again, that is because Aronson fits into the style of play that, that they have. And I don't think there's any intention at Leeds that when Bielsa goes, they will completely abandon the style of play. I mean, the 23s have been coached to play like that and the lower age groups as well. It makes sense to try and have some orderly transition where you maintain a lot of what you've been doing. So yeah, it, you know, it, it, does, it does definitely make it tricky. I think, to put it in a short way, there are other head coaches who are far easier to buy players for, certainly. Finally then Somerville, um, just returning to him and um, his position within the 23s. Is he going full drama? Is he wanting out? It looks like there are lots of rumblings in that direction. Um, talk of Hamburg this week. Um, there, there is interest in him. I'm not sure Hamburg is actually the, the club that he that is most keen on him, or at least not the, the biggest club that, that have had the look. You see, the, the message from Leeds, Leeds again is that they're not in a position to let people go because of injuries. But of course, that was the message before Drammy went and Drammy went because he was very much knocking on the door saying, I want to go. And at that point, you know, Bielsa said, right, OK, well, if you go and then you go. Look, from a PR perspective, I, I think one of the last things you want to do is to be letting some of your 23s go at the back end, the end of a window where potentially nothing much is is going on. It is strange though, isn't it? Because you, you kind of think there are lots of circumstances in which somebody like Somerville getting touted to go on loan to Bundesliga 2 or you know a higher level than that would kind of seem in everybody's interests you know would, would potentially be good for him but that's where we are this season that's how it is it, the, the resources are just not deep enough you know particularly because of injuries 
are just not deep enough for that to look sensible. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham, all new, Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, following on from all that centre-forward chat and uh, talk of Rodrigo and so on, number nine's uh, at Ellen Road. And I think one of the things that became obvious on Saturday against Newcastle was the absence of of a centre-forward, whether that's through, you know, Rodrigo playing further back or not having a big enough squad, whatever it might be. We desperately missed somebody who can just be there in the box and put these chances away, didn't we? How, how crucial is is Patrick Bamford to this setup now, seeing as Bielsa seems hell-bent on using Rodrigo as a 10? Well, we're not digging up any new nuggets of gold here, but I was thinking about Bamford because we're halfway through the season. He's made five starts. He's played less than 500 minutes. He's barely been involved in it when all's said and done. And he has this foot injury that meant that he wasn't involved against Newcastle. And Bielsa was asked after the game, will he be fit on the other side of this of this winter break? Which is quite prolonged. You know, it's two and a half weeks before Leeds play Villa away. And Bielsa said, oh, I've, I have my doubts. You know, I, I'm not sure that he will be. And to give that, that spiel about, you know, you, it's one thing being fit or healthy, you know, technically fit, but you need to be up to speed and, and you need to be able to cope with the strain of the game. I.e. you need to be eased back into it or pushed back into it through 23's games, motherball and, and all the rest, which makes you think that they could be without him for a good while yet. And it's nothing new to say that Bamford is critical to this team. But I think what I came away from um, Saturday's game thinking and realising was that they don't have an established deputy for Bamford at Leeds. There is nobody there. And it's not that we can argue about whether there's anybody there who could be it. And you have Rodrigo, obviously, who is a Spain international, number nine, was a number nine at, at Valencia. But Rodrigo never plays there, you know, with very few exceptions. Even on Saturday, when that position changed three times, as I said, from James to Roberts to, to Gelhart. Rodrigo consistently stayed in behind. There was never a thought of, right, get this guy into into the nine role and see see what he does. You have Gilhart there, but as you said, he wasn't the first choice off the bench. He didn't start on Saturday. It was James instead. So you've got a winger who's playing up front, which by the way is nothing new because if you go back to 2018, very first month of Bielsa, or start the second month of his time as head coach, he was playing Harrison up front away at Millwall. You know, so that that is what he does, pushes players into into different positions but you really have to go back to his first season when he had Bamford and Roof to find a, a situation where there were two head-to-head established and proven centre-forwards now admittedly Roof was still developing um, and, and Bamford had, had kind of you know up and down times good times at Middlesbrough not so good um, in between but they were two recognisable forwards who were there and, and performed and everything else even though Bamford was injured he I was going to say we only ever had one of them fit that was the that was the ridiculous thing. But even on paper, 
you had both of them. And yes, there was Bamford and Nketiah, but then Nketiah went halfway through the season and they signed Augustine, who could have been good, but was ultimately a busted flush. There hasn't ever really been that kind of fixed competition in that that position to the extent that when Bamford's out, you're almost not sure if Bielsa knows what the best move is in, in terms of deputising for him. Who plays there? And who is Bamford's replacement? I, that's Like I say, it, it was just a thought after Saturday's game. I just thought that it actually isn't really anybody who can say 100% when Bamford's out, I'm in at nine. Just two quick questions around that, just with um, Villa in mind. A couple of whispers that Phillips might be back for that. Do you think he's that close? Because you said he might be a little bit ahead of schedule a couple of weeks ago. But um, will Villa be uh, a bridge too far for him? I haven't heard recently on Phillips how he's doing, but around about the turn of the year, the view was, even at the point where Bielsa said, I think he and Cooper will be out until March, the view was that there was a reasonable chance of him beating that time frame because he can be quite a quick recoverer, can Phillips. And, and you've seen before that he's one of the players who has coped with kind of being bombed back into the team pretty rapidly after recovering from injury. So I'm not entirely sure. I, I think, as always with these things, it depends on how Bielsa sees it and what Bielsa thinks. If he gets towards, I honestly don't know at this stage exactly where Phillips is at, but even if Phillips was potentially in line for games in February, Bielsa will take a view on it and decide whether or not he thinks he's ready. With the number nine role in mind then, and talking about Rodrigo here, it feels like that the role of the number nine, the modern number nine, has changed a little bit in, in recent years. You, you definitely describe Bamford as that sort of hard work, pressing, closing down and all that which you, you don't see that in Rodrigo. So you wonder maybe if that's why he tends to play him that little bit deeper because he can't necessarily do all the legwork up front. And James pressing is pretty good. You know, he's he's energetic in, in that sense. You, you've kind of done a list here of, of ex-Leeds United number nines, you know, going back to like Hasselbank and, and Viduka. And actually, I, I kind of love looking through that era and looking at the, the centre-forwards or strikers that Leeds did recruit because they were very, very good at it. You know, guys like Robbie Keane and so on, uh, Michael Bridges as well, had a real knack for picking up extremely good goal scorers. But when I watch them back and and look at highlights of them, they're very different players to what centre-forwards do now. You know, I think Viduka, who is probably as much a striker I enjoyed watching as much as anybody else in, in that era, he would have had to have changed this game an awful lot and I think we'd have had to have gone through the mill <laughs> with um, training ground work in order to have been a, a Bielsa centre forward. And you know, <laughs> Imagine the running you'd have to do. Well, well that's Jeez. it really. And likewise, somebody like Becchio. You know, Becchio was extremely good at playing alone up front. You know, he, he had it down to, to a fine art. And actually, in his last season, I always felt that without playing particularly well, he was amazing at harvesting goals. You know, he could score like the best of them without properly shining. But he wasn't that kind of, you know, he, he didn't kind of press in the way that Bamford presses. It's not to say that he couldn't have done it, but that just kind of wasn't the way that that Leeds team were built. Beckford, you know, Beckford's very much on the shoulder, using his pace, great, great finisher. But I'd love to speak to him about how he thinks he'd have coped with the, the Bielsa regime because obviously Beckford had issues with his hamstrings and, and everything else. This might not be a particularly popular opinion, but the player who sort of jumps out and would doubtless have needed work and you know moulding and some, you know, some some graft on fitness and everything else like everybody does under Bielsa, but the player who stands out who's probably been most suited would be somebody like Chris Wood in that Gary Monk season who has the kind of physique to play as a lone striker, which, for example, somebody like Ross McCormack probably doesn't. Great finisher, McCormack, and, and almost got to 30 goals in that season, but is not 
you know, your kind of Bamford stature of, and it's not like Bamford's massive, but he's a big guy. You know, he's bigger than me. He's suited to to fighting with, you know, two centre-backs on his case. And Wood would potentially have been able to do that. And when you look back to that season, whatever you think of Wood now, you have to say that some of his finishing was was absolutely excellent. And But it's a very, very niche role. It is. And it's changed. Surely Steve the Schiff Morrison would be the one to do the pressing. <laughs> if, you want someone, if you want someone who presses fairly slowly. <laughs> Imagine that, Bielsa coming in at that point when Morrison's reputation <laughs> is on the floor and turning him into <laughs> championship title winner. But um, thinking back to Mark Viduca, and I think he, along with Olivier Decor, was probably my favourite player in that side. He was just, he was so talented and so skillful. But he also was playing in a 4-4-2 and had Alan Smith alongside him a lot of the time, tearing around like an absolute madman. Yeah, no, it was different, very different team, but it was a different era and football has changed a lot. I'd, I'd love to go back sometime and watch football in the 90s and look at how much teams actually pressed, you know, without people having much concept of what pressing was or, or you know, in the, the way in which it's become a, a sort of focal point in itself, something that you could write a book about, you know, the art of art of pressing. Did teams do that? Did strikers bother? You know, I can think of a lot of Hearts games I went to in the 80s with strikers who just basically, John Robertson basically popped up in the six-yard box and scored all the time, you know, but that was kind of how it was and that was the that was the kind of art of it. And it's not as if that was the only style of forward that you had back in those days, but nowadays, and, and this applies at Leeds as much as anywhere else, you have to be so much more than a finisher, which, you know, that that was what kind of counted slightly against Nketiah. Nketiah seemed to score with everything he touched, but the all-round game didn't suit Bielsa as much as Bamford's, which is why he was just absolutely resolute Bielsa and supporting Bamford throughout I think Smith actually stood out at the time as being someone who did press it was admittedly in it wasn't in the way you see now where there's a, a coordinated effort for it he was just he kind of did his own thing did Smith he was a bit of he, he'd quite often just just fly into someone at the back <laughs> in a ball that he really had no right to reach but I think that was, that was one of the things that endeared him to people was that he did do that and it was it stood out at the time I think for, particularly compared to people we'd had like, like Viduka was obviously in the same team but you know, Hasselbank and Yeboah, they're kind of the previous high marks for strikers and Chapman didn't really do any of that. And Alan Smith, his his style of pressing was not just pressing, it was to, to leave your leg in and make sure you catch the man as well as the ball and often just the man if the ball wasn't there. That's kind of what Dan James is doing with goalkeepers at yeah. the minute, isn't it? That, that kind of pressing. It was like wild and loose <laughs> and um, you wouldn't have looked at it back then and said, this is part of a high press or a mid block or a, you know, a low block or, or whatever else. It was just Smith being Smith and playing at 100 miles an hour and, and doing doing what he liked to do. But even him, I mean, if you, you think of this 4-1-4-1 formation at Leeds, it's kind of hard to think where somebody like him would necessarily have fitted into it. You could put him up front, but I don't know whether Smith was ever a player suited to playing on his own up there. You know, in, in the same way as you said, Viduka kind of fed off what's, a lot of what Smith did. It probably helped Smith to have somebody like Viduka right next to him and, you know, you, you, yin and yang and... And, and a partnership that, that works. It always seemed to me that Smith was better in a two than than on his own. Um, so yeah, I think, for, I think for all of them, it would have been quite an education, this. I think you've hit upon it there, though, in that a lot of modern tactics sort of are built around what, four banks of players in different formations, whether it's 4-2-3-1 or 4-1-4-1 or whatever it is, whereas that it was three banks of players, it was 4-4-2 more often than not. Yeah, and, and also the, the kind of building of attacks now is such a big thing. There was somebody had done that. I should have name checked them actually. I can't remember who it was, but somebody had done some really interesting analysis. I say interesting, some people might think this is hideously boring, but I found it interesting about what Premier League teams do with goal kicks. You know, so how long do they go? 
generally where are most of the, the goal kicks aimed at? You know, are they all concentrated in your own half or beyond the halfway line? Leeds had virtually none that were going into the final third at all. You know, from Millie, it was all short passes and kind of mid passes to, to round about the halfway line, but no further than that. And then what it led to, you know, so City, Manchester City, for example, a very, very good high rate of turning goal kicks into attacks. And as you will know by watching them, not by just humping it up the up the field. So there is that aspect of it as well that coaches tend to play more in that style these days. And also, I think, probably feel the pressure to play more in that way as well. There is virtually no fan in the world now who wants to see the team just get it in the mixer. You know, everybody wants to have this image in the head of their team playing attractive and appreciable football rather than just get your foot through it. <laughs> that is one of the things I think, though, that frustrated me about the Newcastle game, just to circle all the way back to that, is that we played out from the back. And we, we've seen actually mixed success with that this season. People have figured out where to press us, and that's normally in the full, sort of full-back, centre-back area, isn't it? And to try and turn over possession there. And we've seen that bloody chip from Melier so many times yeah. land with either the fullback or the winger who then promptly loses it. Although he's, he's started to go a little bit longer to the wingers now, I think, rather than, than just the fullbacks. But the chip to the fullback, annoying the number of times we've been caught with that. But against Newcastle, it worked in that first half nearly every time. And we got through them. And as soon as we got through them, the ball got through into midfield. We looked great. And I think that's one of the things that really, really annoyed me is how easily we got through their lines on Saturday and just couldn't turn it into anything. Yeah, definitely. And that's been the, the kind of style of play right from the start. Bielsa has never been averse to diagonal balls or long balls if they have some intelligence and some wit behind them. I think, you know, the, if you want a black eye from him, smashing your foot through it in the hope of hitting your centre forward is probably the easiest way to get it. But if you're aiming accurate balls to the flanks, and you're right about Melly's um, distribution. I mean, there have been occasions where those kind of floated chips to fullbacks have caused problems. And the one that comes to mind straight away is Mason Mount's goal down at Stamford Bridge, you know, which, which Dallas just couldn't bring that under control. And maybe you can point the finger at, at Dallas. But again, those are the risks that Bielsa's has taken right the way through. Those are the risks that he's asked the team to take right from the very start. He's always been willing to compromise and, and to accept that there will be some cost to that because nobody's flawless and, and players make mistakes. But that the the greater good will be that generally you'll play well and the system will will work for you. And you're certainly right about Newcastle. I mean, the, the, that first half was was just begging Leeds to wrap it up, sticking a couple of goals, jobs are good. And, and that ultimately was what cost them. Michael, do you remember much of Hasselbank, what he was like as a style of player? And would he fit into like a modern Leeds team, do you think? Because he liked to play off the shoulder quite a lot, didn't he? I can't see him fitting into this. He was... What I remember of Hasselbank, other than the incredibly good goals he scored, was that the amount he would sulk during a game as well. There was <laughs> there was absolutely no time for Hasselbank stropping at his teammates or a, a defender or the referee in this Leeds team. If you look at the way Dan James does it as, as a striker or Bamford, when they, they're just constantly on the go running between centre-back to full-back to goalkeeper... Hasselbank was not at all suited. <laughs> I don't think so. I, I have visions of him just sprinting beyond the last man and banging in shots from yeah. all over the place, which is great and everything else. But um, it's only a tiny part of what centre forwards asked to do in this team. Do you think like the the modern centre forward has kind of sacrificed finishing for the work and the the whole team ethic a little bit more? Yes, in as much as you're not allowed to poach anymore, are you? You can't just be a six-yard box um, striker. There will be occasional teams who can accommodate that, but everybody looks for, for far more. And, and the players who end up costing most money and, and are most expensive are the players who have far more to the game 
than that. I mean, Haaland at, at Dortmund is an unbelievable finisher. And there are aspects of his game which could definitely improve as well. But he's far more than that. You know, his goal scoring is, is absolutely ridiculous. But the reason that he will get a very, very big move is because he can do all the things that, um, you know, a, a, a top level a top level coach like uh, Guardiola wants you to do. I'd like to see what Bielsa would do with a, a 21-year-old Jermaine Beckford. Because I think he had the he had the pace to do the darting around between defenders if he had the fitness, which we, we didn't generally see from him. He was more in, in burst, wasn't he, Beckford? But, and a, a reasonable physical presence as well, in the same way as Bamford. He's not, not exactly brilliant in the air, but he, he could position himself well for headed goals, could Beckford, from time to time. Plus, he could play off the shoulder if... You know, if there was those Urente long balls over the top that we sometimes do. So I think I think he of the modern strikers, he probably have had the most potential. Well I'll tell you what, when I come off this, I'll WhatsApp back for the Nosatum. We were wondering today how you how you would fare in a Bielsa team. And I think you'd be pretty honest about it. And I I wouldn't be that surprised if he, he says he's not entirely sure. You know, because technically speaking, everybody can change and everybody can be modelled into the into a slightly different player or develop new strengths. But you your core strengths tend to be your core strengths and and as we've seen at Leeds, there are some players who just can't quite get to get to that level. You know, to pick out Pontus Janssen as an example, very, very good in Bielsa's first season. But Bielsa still saw in him flaws that another centre-back could could play without, you know. And, and Ben White, I think, was a better ball carrier than, um, than Janssen, was, was better in possession and, and better at using possession. And that was what Bielsa was looking for. And I think it would always have been a challenge for Janssen to have got to that exact level although you know Janssen has made it to the Premier League and has done very very well at Brentford so it's no no real slight on him particularly but it's not the case that Bielsa can get hold of every player and say right I'm going to work on you and you're going to become absolutely tailor-made for my system and you saw that in his first summer because when he came in it was a case of I want these players because I can I, I, I can basically fashion them in the style that they need to be this lot you can get rid of because they're just not right for me and I'm not going to be able to do anything with them so let's wrap it up then before we head off by just um, saying one more thing about the transfer window. Oh, ne- good. Never say never, Phil. Never say never. Have I said never today? I can't remember. Just now. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, we'll, we'll have a, a debrief on it when we get here next week and we'll we'll see what, if anything, has happened and we, what the reactions yeah, I mean, This is part of the issue with the, the transfer window and I find this in January in particular. January has this effect of making everybody assume that every club is going to be at it right the way through from the 1st to the, the 31st. And actually, if in the case of Leeds, you make one bid and it's for Aronson and it doesn't get accepted and it's made kind of halfway through the window, there isn't necessarily a huge amount going on that is here and now information. You know, it's just kind of that's that's what's happening. And, and it's not low-key in the sense of him being a low-key target. You know, I mean, £20 million is a lot of money, but it's low-key in as much as it's nothing like what's going on at Newcastle where they seem to be trying to sign five, six players, if they actually can. But also in the transfer window, you do never know. And Dan James was last, last minute in the summer. Augustine came very late in the January window. The only thing I would say about Augustine was it was extremely clear that they were after a striker and they needed a striker. I'm not convinced this time. I'm not so sure. But um, yes, I will um, I'll leave the window open just in case. <laughs> I can tell you're enjoying this, Phil. <laughs> uh, listen, we will uh, return next week, I say, with a full um, with a debrief on what has or hasn't happened. In the meantime, you can subscribe to The Athletic at theathletic.com forward slash leads pod, 33% off. And we will catch you next week. Bye-bye. The Phil Hay Show.